on this episode of the program, Kevin McCarthy, his relationship with Donald Trump, and if it will affect his shepherding of the IRS whistleblower. Also, why do some candidates run for president when they know gosh darn well they ain't gonna win? We bring on Gabe Fleischer of Wake Up to Politics to discuss that. It's all coming up. This is made possible by Dustin Campbell, Oh Them Bones, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for June 30th, 2023. Your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you here in Austin, Texas. Hey, by the way, if you are in Austin, Texas, my comedy show, uh, Great Night Comedy Podcast, we got a live show here in South Austin. So come on out to see that. Uh, That is at Captain Quacks at the soundstage. I'm just realizing right now that I have not let you guys know about it. So uh, please come out if you'd like to support uh, myself and Brian Brushwood. It's going to be a really, really great time. And I guarantee you that venue is a deep, dank cave that will be kept very, very cool in our hot Austin summer temps. But let's focus on politics here. In fact, I want to play for you a clip. Is that a good thing for the Republican Party if Donald Trump is the... The the Republicans get to select their nominee. I think if you want to go sheer policy to policy, it's not good for Republicans. It's good for America. Trump's policies are better, straightforward than Biden. It makes it complicated if if he's got all these trials and and, and all this stuff overhanging. It makes it complicated. Also helps him when. But do you think he could win an election? Could he win an election? Can he win that election? Yeah, he can. You think he can? The the question is: Is he the strongest to win the election? I don't know that answer. But can somebody? Can anybody beat Biden? Yeah, anybody can beat Biden. Can Biden beat other people? Yes, Biden can beat him. It's on any given day. That is Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy making an unforced error in the House of Trump. Yes, he said Chungus could beat Biden. Yes, he said that Trump's policies connect more with the American people. But he made the unforgivable mistake of saying that Donald Trump is not the strongest candidate that could run for president. He doesn't know. He might be. He just doesn't know. Well, that certainly isn't going to stand. Here's the reaction. According to Politico, quote, Trump world flipped out. Top aides to the former president and allies who know both men quickly traded messaging, messaging, asking in short, what the F? Some called McCarthy a moron. Others looked at Trump campaign hand Brian Jack, who also advises the speaker and has been a critical bridge between both men to play mediator as Trump hit the trail in New Hampshire. Now, of course, McCarthy called and apologized and then stepped in it again by attempting to fundraise off the kerfuffle, which pissed off Trump world, according to the same article. And this is a minor hiccup that will have probably died down by the time you hear this, unless something happens between when I'm recording this and when you listen to it. 
if Kevin McCarthy, a man who is desperately trying to be everything to everyone in the Republican world while everyone increasingly hates each other, does what he desperately doesn't want to do and picks a side. Reminder that McCarthy has not endorsed Trump. He hasn't endorsed anybody. Yet, we all assume that Kevin McCarthy will eventually repay the favor that Donald Trump did for him, helping McCarthy secure the speakership. But, there is reason why McCarthy doesn't want to affiliate himself with an open primary wherein we're still two months away from the first debate and even more away from the first caucus. And that's because Kevin McCarthy is the highest ranking Republican in the federal government. He is somebody that wants to be able to move as free as he generally can without the encumbrances of election interference. That's something that you've already heard a lot from the Republican side, that the Biden DOJ is interjecting themselves in election interference. And you are likely about to hear many of the same charges from the Democrats. That is, if Kevin McCarthy can get his way and make a bigger noise about a story that is all-encompassing on the conservative side and is relatively uncovered, except for a few drips and drabs, including a New York Times article this week, in the more mainstream press. And that is the IRS whistleblower. Oh. Now, this is something that I'm sure our more conservative-leaning listeners are well aware of. But many of you might not have heard about the IRS whistleblower. So, who are they? Well, they're supervisory agent Gary Shapley. And he has accused the Justice Department of interfering in the tax fraud investigation of Hunter Biden. Obviously, son of President Biden. Shapley claims that his team was prevented from carrying out key investigative steps that could have potentially implicated President Biden in that investigation. In a televised interview, Shapley said, quote, there were certain investigative steps that we weren't allowed to take that could have led us to President Biden, emphasizing that the investigative procedures his team was purportedly blocked from completing were necessary to the investigation. Shapley's team found evidence of several illegal business expenses during their investigation, including personal expenses that were taken as business ones, like sex club memberships and hotel rooms for purported drug dealers. Shapley suggested the evidence of the alleged crimes committed by Hunter Biden would have likely resulted in prison time for any other individual. From 2014 to 2019, Hunter was found to owe $2.2 million in taxes to the federal government. Shapley also expressed that recent comments by Attorney General Merrick Garland about Delaware U.S. Attorney General David Weiss's complete authority in this investigation contradicted his own experience as part of the team. Shapley informed the House Ways and Means Committee that, Weiss's, uh, that Weiss attempted to bring federal charges against Hunter in the Central District of California and Washington, D.C., but was denied both times. 
by Biden-appointed U.S. attorneys Martin Estrada and Matthew Graves. Weiss has sought to be appointed a special counsel in the case at least twice, including as recently as the spring of 2022, but was rejected by the Biden Justice Department. Shapley says that these claims have been corroborated by a several by a separate anonymous IRS whistleblower. However, Attorney General Garland stated that Weiss never made the request that Shapley says he did to him. Last week, the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office announced that Hunter had agreed to plead guilty to federal tax and firearms charges in a deal that will likely result in no prison time and no felony convictions, a decision some legal experts has criticized as overly lenient. Amongst this investigation are text messages, text messages from Hunter Biden to foreign nationals that, if true and corroborated, would seem to back up the idea that Joe was very much in the loop as to Hunter's foreign influence or money jobs. Specifically one that says, my dad is in the room. You need to pay up immediately. I'm, you know, paraphrasing there. Now, this has, of course, the same hallmarks as a lot of government whistleblower situations. And before you hand wave away, oh, whatever, it's just somebody trying to rabble rouse. Obviously, the, you know, this isn't Weiss saying this. This is somebody under Weiss. And Garland says that none of this ever happened. Let's all remember that Trump's first impeachment also came from a whistleblower. And it was, ironically, also about Hunter Biden. <laughs> uh, but rather... Trump's call to a then far less famous Zelensky in Ukraine discussing how much Zelensky should be looking in to Hunter Biden and Burisma. And that's all going to play out the way it plays out. I don't know the veracity of it. There's a reason why I haven't talked about it up until now. And, and that's because I was very curious to see how this was going to come out. And I was curious to see what the reaction was going to be whenever we get into situations like this. I don't like to be the first one to the trough because we are rapidly entering into the silly season where a lot of stuff is going to get blown up out of proportion. But still, I do think that this is worth looking into. And I do think that the more this gets mainstream attention, the worse it would be for Joe Biden and therefore the better it would be for any Republican nominee certainly any Republican. And Kevin McCarthy is in the business of benefiting Republicans. So will this be platformed louder than it would be otherwise if Kevin McCarthy flies to Bedminster and endorses Donald Trump tomorrow? Will it matter? It seems as if McCarthy thinks it does because he wants everybody in his incredibly fractured caucus to be on the same page while he tries to make this as big of a deal as possible. Because there's one thing that brings a broken family together, and that is success. The larger lesson here is a simple one, and really a tenant of leadership for anybody who wants to get into that business. Kevin McCarthy's job right now 
is simply to eat it and then get criticized for how he ate it and why he didn't eat more. This is your update brought to you as always by TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Folks, I saw something truly beautiful this week, and I mean it. Gorgeous, amazing, like the first flower blooming after a long winter. In my inbox, I got the first unhinged caustic email of the 2024 election season. Now, this show doesn't get a ton of unhinged emails. Since we don't read a lot of them on the show and the vast majority of people who email in are genuinely looking to ask a question or connect. All of which, by the way, I'm happy to do. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. But the unhinged angry ones normally show up when the lights are the brightest. Election time, baby. When all of those endorphins are running even higher. Now, this particular unhinged email endeavored to rename the very show you're listening to. It's the same word three times, and I'm not going to repeat it, but it started with a P and would have been best to have been followed by the word cat. So you might ask yourself, why did this screed make my heart sing? Because it means people are beginning to get plugged in to this election, which means you're more plugged in to this program, which means that there are more folks who are going to plug in to our Patreon. We're at the $3 level. You get two bonus episodes each and every week. Did I not cover the issue that you really, really, really wanted me to cover? Oh, well, you better be a patron because I might have covered it on one of those other two shows. Oh, take politics seriously dot com. Three dollar level. Cheaper than a cup of coffee. But now let's go ahead and get to your update. President Joe Biden has rolled out a bit of a gamble, in my opinion, of a strategy for 24 He is going to own the economy. Recessionary risks be damned. White House this week announced that it is going all in on his campaign to claim credit for the nation's post-economic or post-pandemic resurgence, touting an economic vision that aids see a central to Biden's presidential legacy. In fact, they're daring to give it a name. Bidenomics. It is a messaging push that marks the most aggressive yet by Biden world to convince the public that the economy is, in fact, good. It's also a major bet that the bottom won't fall out, at least through November 2024. And with many people predicting a recession, if not by the end of this year, at the beginning of next, that's a bold statement. Quote Seth Harris, the former deputy director at Biden's National Economic Council. They're going to wrap their arms fully around the economic strategy and economic results. And I think their expectation is that there will not be a recession. So do they know something that the economists and banks don't? Are they not worried about the commercial real estate troubles? Possible bust? 
I mean, they certainly think so. And boy, will this stage of the nascent campaign get memory hold if they're wrong? What can Brown do for you? Well, possibly strike. The Teamsters working for shipping giant UPS said a strike is quote unquote imminent after walking away from the bargaining table. The UPS Teamster said in a statement last Wednesday that it gave UPS a one week notice Tuesday to act responsibly and exchange a stronger economic proposal to more than 340,000 employees of the shipping company. The Teamsters demanded that UPS delivers its last, best, and final offer to the union by Friday when you are likely listening to this show. The largest single employer strike in American history now appears to be inevitable, said Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien in a statement. Which, by the way, come on. If you're going to cast or you're going to write a a character for the Teamsters president, Sean O'Brien, that's what you'd name him. O'Brien continues, executives at UPS, some of whom get tens of millions of dollars a year, do not care about hundreds of thousands of American workers who make this company run. A lot of talk about whether or not there is just a general rise in strikes. Obviously, we see stuff going on in Hollywood, not exactly applicable for the vast majority of you that are listening, but certainly something very loud that people pay attention to. Will UPS strike? If so, for how long? We'll find out. My general sense of this, and this is only slightly informed by having some informal conversations, is that you're seeing a lot of this not necessarily because the proletariat is ready to throw off the yoke of capitalism, but rather that a lot of things that got put on hold during the pandemic are now coming due at the same time. It's just a bunch of cans that were kicked down the road to this one big pile of cans. And that's why we're seeing a lot of them in pretty quick succession. And Fox News Channel will debut a new primetime lineup starting July 17th. Fox News Media CEO Suzanne Scott announced this week. Of course, this comes after the departure of Tucker Carlson, somebody that we've talked a bit about over the last few months. Laura Ingram will keep her show The Ingram Angle at 7 p.m. That'll be followed by Jesse Waters' primetime shifting to 8. So he gets the Tucker Carlson slot. Hannity will remain at 9 p.m. And Gutfeld will move out of late night and into the anchor position of the primetime lineup. His show will now begin at 10 Quote, Scott, Fox News Channel has been America's destination for news and analysis for more than 21 years, and we are thrilled to debut a new lineup. The unique perspectives of Ingram, Waters, Hannity, and Gutfeld will ensure our viewers have access to unrivaled coverage from our best-in-class team for years to come. This comes after the fact that Fox News continues to have a bit of a Trump problem. Trump was reportedly not thrilled with the way that Things went during his interview with Brett Baer and is said to be iffy on showing up to the first Republican debate, which will air on Fox. It's not much of a surprise here. Waters and Gutfeld have long been the next two up on the bench in Fox News's cavalcade of stars. Waters is cheaper than Carlson and That's the anchor position. But it is, you know, a sign of where the cable news world is that 
Fox News decided to go into their most important cycle with a couple of fresh faces, or at least fresher than would have been if a very powerful and very uh, entrenched Carlson were to go into this season as the incumbent. Well, we will continue to cover this in the best way that we know how here at PX3. Thanks to you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you need to go if you want to sign up and support. $3 level gets you two bonus episodes each and every week. $10 level gets your name read at the end of the show. And any higher than that, we can talk about it. Well, you can read it on the on the website. We don't have to talk if you don't want to. It's fine. Take politics seriously.com. It's one of the age old questions and something that you guys ask me all the time in your emails and on Twitter. With all the also rans that are entering the Republican primary, Why? Even the people with national recognition can barely get above 5%. So what chance to the Doug Burgums and Suarez's and herds of the world really, really, really have? Nothing. Or is it? Gabe Fleischer is the author of the Wake Up to Politics newsletter. He wrote about this a couple weeks ago and... He joins us now to discuss the phenomenon. Welcome to the show, Gabe. Thanks so much for having me. So you wrote a a, a really great newsletter, Wake Up to Politics, uh, a couple of weeks ago, talking about a subject that has never been more pressing. And in our four-year kind of lunar cycle of uh, the political world, this is the highest time for people to announce that they're running for president while you know, anybody but maybe their mom uh, uh, would tell them that they have very, very little shot at doing it. We just saw Will Hurd jump in last week as the most recent example. Uh, why? You, you you wrote about this. Why do people do it? Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, I wrote about this in the news last week because it's a question I get a lot and it's a question I've wondered myself. And I really think the answer is there's very little downside at this kind of point in our kind of political ecosystem to running for president. I think if you look at recent history, in the piece I kind of went through the 2020 field, and if you look in almost every example, candidates almost always end up in kind of a better position politically after running for president than not. Politically and personally, you know, you can, you get a book deal out of it, you get a TV contract. You know, if you're very lucky, like, you know, Pete Buttigieg or Hillary Clinton in 2008, you might end up in the cabinet. You're very, very lucky, like, you know, George H.W. Bush, at one point, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, you could run for president and then lose the nomination but become vice president. So you're almost always, you can see your influence really expand in Congress, like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren did in 2020. So almost always you see these candidates are trading up in some way. You know, it seems kind of embarrassing by some degree. You know, you might drop out before Iowa, New Hampshire, or get yeah. like 1% or 2% there. But in the end, oftentimes it does end up better for them, you know, politically or, or personally, you know, their wealth-wise you know, they, they kind of end up doing pretty well. So a lot of those names that you just mentioned were, were folks that 
had a career beforehand that had a political trajectory. I think probably the best example of the ones you just rattled off is is Buttigieg, for somebody that was yep. you know unsuccessfully ran for party leadership uh, and then through you know the the vaunted uh, uh, PR skills of <laughs> the people around him has now laundered himself into the highest levels of of government. But let's focus on the Will Herds of the world. Yeah, but- let, let, let's focus on 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 the Doug Burgums or the Suarez's who have entered into this race over the last few weeks, they're coming kind of from out of nowhere. So how, how do you uh, ride that Buddha judge lane? If, if you are uh, one of these other candidates? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for these people, you know, Buddha judge, that's really the dream. And if you look at yeah. how that happened in the toy train campaign, it was really that one CNN town hall. I don't remember exactly when in the primary process, but pretty soon after announced, he had a CNN town hall, as CNN kind of gives almost anyone who runs for president, so you're almost assured at least that kind of platform, and maybe also a platform on the debate stage. It was that one CNN town hall, I think, most notably, he really went after Pence, obviously his fellow yes, Indiana, yeah. about gay rights, and now was kind of this moment, no one had heard of Pete Buttigieg, you know, political wonks of you and me, you know, he was obviously yeah. made the name on our radars, but for most people, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a very small city, you know, he was not really known, and yet there was that one moment in the town hall Suddenly, he was a name. Is that going to happen to Francis Suarez or Will Hurd? Probably not. I would be surprised. <laughs> but you never know. You never know. You gamble that you might get a CNN town hall. You might get on the debate stage. Obviously, these people are very proud of their own abilities. They think yeah. they're highly themselves. And they hope they might get that zinger in, that really good line. And then suddenly, you know, they're catapulted to the top. You know, Will it happen? Probably not. But it's always possible. And I think for most of them, they think it's worth a shot. From your perspective, when you look at these kinds of campaigns, what do you think, aside from hoping that, you know, I think the, the, the Buttigieg example, I guess, is, is a really good and bad one because mm-hmm. it's a, a, a good one in, okay, this dude was the outgoing mayor of a tiny town that outside of college football, nobody would ever care about. Okay. Uh, but he got discovered and it was this very star is born moment where all of a sudden he's standing next to Joe Biden and you're like, oh, well, uh, these two things belong together. But, but he didn't really have the issue. And I tend to think that when you are one of these fringe candidates, it's better to almost follow the Andrew Yang philosophy yep. of have one big, crazy idea that at the very least, if you can make it onto the debate stage, you're going to ask the more uh, uh, entrenched candidates. They're going to have yep. to answer for, you know, whether or not we should all wear hats on Wednesdays or whatever crazy mm-hmm. policy sure. thing that you that 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 you have. What do you think for some of these guys who have got in? Are you just there to announce yourself and hope the world recognizes you for the amazing person that you are? Or is it more realistic to say, no, I need to go hard on one thing that nobody else is talking about? I think that's a good point. I get the, the one amendment I made to that is I think it doesn't necessarily have to be an issue, but I think you're right. There has to be one thing that kind of separates you. So I think sometimes it's an issue. You know, I think of like, for example, Herman Cain in 2012, like the 999 yep. 999. Plan. You mentioned Andrew Yang with UBI. Like, I think those are great examples of an issue. I think sometimes it can be a style. I think that was more the case for Pete Buttigieg. I think it's hard to really, like, say that there was one issue that he ran with. But, you know, it was his style. He was, A, very young and how he talked, but also he said yes to every interview. And then also yeah. his identity. You know, he was this young gay mayor. So they that's a big, that's a big thing. To. You see, like, Francis Suarez. He's this young Hispanic, you know, mayor. He clearly thinks that will help him. Tim Scott. 
or Nikki Haley also, or Rick Ramaswamy too. You know, they are also in some ways, even as they deny in some ways that their identity is central to their campaign, they're also using it to elevate themselves in a Republican Party that's trying to be more diverse, trying to include more minority voices. Yeah. So I think it does always have to be one thing and they do try to find, and sometimes they never do. Honestly, I don't know what Doug Burgum's one thing <laughs> might be. So I'm not saying everyone has it, but I think they do try to find either you're right, either an issue or sometimes it is just something about themselves, something in their identity, or even just sometimes a style of how they speak or of how they approach or present themselves that I do think you're right is crucial to finding or else you're just, you know, some white guy who sounds like everyone else and you're probably not going to go very far. Doug Burgum's thing is, you ever watch Yellowstone? What if that were the president? <laughs> Like that's, right. that's a sec, that's effectively his thing. I guess I can't believe that uh, I, I passed right over in the democratic party, which has fetishized the new, the first, right. Mm-hmm. Since mm-hmm. Kennedy, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it has always, they, they love nothing more than the first Catholic president, mm-hmm. the, the first uh, uh, boomer president, the, the first, uh, uh, you know, black president, obviously in, in Obama. So I guess that was the, a very, very wise thing with Judge and his team is literally just get him out there. Mm-hmm. And specifically in that town hall, the one that you mentioned, where not only did he draw a very, very uh, uh, thick line in the sand between him and Pence, who at that point, you know, in, in the Trump hysteria past uh, 2016 was absolute catnip, but also was able to talk churchy enough right. yeah. mm-hmm. that, that he felt very, you know, pre scandals, Clinton crossovery, which is very much a sweet spot for, mm-hmm. uh, for, 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 for the Democrats. Whereas like Ramaswamy and Tim Scott, and Nikki Haley have to kind of mention their identity as the subject with the predicate being, and it doesn't matter because we're not them. Mm-hmm. Like it matters on the democratic side. It does not matter here. And that's why, that's why we're a, a you know, and a, a better party with more important ideas. But yeah, I, I, I still don't see a ton of any kind of, branding or big idea thinking from some of these these other candidates except for like maybe Ramaswamy with with yeah. ESG but even then explain that to your mom like <laughs> you know like I, I she has no idea what ESG is I think that's true and but I think in the broader kind of crusade against wokeism that's clearly been you yeah know, but that's mainstream that's, yeah, that's I would agree yeah I, I would note that you know, it's interesting I wrote about this in the newsletter this morning I spent the weekend at the faith and freedom coalition conference where all the candidates spoke mm-hmm. everyone in the field and I was very struck. I think after Trump, I think I would say he was the candidate who's received the best, um, which yeah. I was very interested by. I thought he really did kind of um, resonate with a lot of the voters there. And another thing I would note, also since we're talking about identity, something I didn't realize that he mentioned and actually kind of rounded his speech in was that he made the point that he is the first millennial to run for the Republican presidential nomination. So that was very interesting. And and it was kind of an older crowd at this conference, but yeah. um, I heard a lot of people kind of mentioning that and it was kind of a theme of his speech. Um, so just another kind of, in addition to an issue, which I think you're probably right, wokeism clearly is not his issue in the Republican Party, but that identity um, is one that he's kind of tried to run with, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, you know, Vivek is, it's it's such an interesting, probably the most interesting campaign so far in our very young, nascent world, if we're going to understand that the constant evolving 
Trump of it all is is it is it's its own animal, right? Like at that point, it, we've we've we long past interesting with that. Now it's just whatever it's going to be. Uh, but Vivek, somebody that to me has look, I, I called it in in a subsect that I wrote. You know, he's he's the the silver surfer candidate that that somebody that knows he's not going to win, but oh. he's going to go and protect the person for whom would eventually benefit him. And you uh-huh. see this often. In fact, in your article uh, uh, that that I contacted you about, you made a very very good point that there is a really really important art of being competitive while you're running mm-hmm. and then possibly being too competitive. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, there, there was an example from, from the 2020 campaign where uh, uh, Julian Castro went too hard on Joe Biden mm-hmm. too often. And, you know, granted Kamala did too. And there were some other folks that, that uh, uh, threw barbs his way that they were able to get over, but Julian Castro, you know, uh, who knows, is probably working at, at, at a dairy queen some here down, <laughs> down in uh, uh, Texas. What for you do you think goes into that line? When is it too far? That That's a good question. And I do think, yeah, I think it is worth noting, even though I said there's almost pure upside, there are examples like Castro um, when, when candidates clearly do cross the line. I think it's hard to parse because you know, there are a lot of examples. For every example of Julian Castro, you're right, there's Kamala Harris, who was very personal in how she attacked Biden on the debate stage. Mm-hmm. So um, voodoo economics, the label that's often yep. attached to Ronald Reagan's economic plan, that was George H. W. Bush yep. who invented that phrase in the 1980 Republican primary before becoming Reagan's vice president. So I think that's hard to parse. I think part of it is about kind of prior relationships. I don't think Biden and Castro had much of a prior relationship. Whereas Biden and Kamala did, partially through Bo, Biden's son. So they were able to have something to able to kind of build back from um, that I think kind of did help, whereas there was not as much of that with Castro. But I think at the end of the day, just as I think there is kind of a, you know, just realism that I was kind of talking about in some in that article about, you know, they know they're not gonna win, but they just want this kind of there's just pure, I guess, ego that just wants what's gonna be best for them, that lands best they can. I think it also works the other way, too, that you often see the presidential candidates. They might not like it. We know Jill Biden reportedly did not love the idea of reuniting with Kamala because, you know, she was yep. very hurt by by her attacks on him. But sometimes there is just this kind of realism that the presidential candidate needs to swallow, too, of like, this is who I need. Maybe we don't maybe that calculation was right or wrong. I think it's hard to say with Biden and Harris. But that was the calculation at the time. And it was kind of conventional wisdom at the time that Biden needed Harris um, to win the win the election. Yeah. And um, just like Obama needed Biden, Biden is another example, made some very awkward comments about Obama in the 2008 presidential primary, <laughs> um, you know, about a, a black candidate who's articulate. I he mean, was clean, like, clean and nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. He was, was really, he was a dream, you know, which which when you when you listen back to that quote, was Biden doing his best to compliment Obama, but in in that in that very Biden-esque he way. He probably was, but he yeah, just stepped exactly. in it completely. Yeah. But again, but Obama just calculated he needed Biden more than even if that bothered him, he just needed Biden. He needed that kind of <laughs> older, more experienced partner. Well, that, so, that, that's that's, that's an example of something that like, you know, uh, uh, the the befuddled old white guy uh, becoming excited about Barack Obama in 2008. That was a core demo for them. Right. Like they needed they wanted the guy who was like, well, yeah, he said something off color at Thanksgiving. But now he's really, really excited about uh, uh, being being a part of this. That was that was a, uh, a boon. What I would say is. 
especially as things get tighter when we get closer to the caucus and closer to the primaries and these debates start stacking up. Like right now, people are very excited for the debates. We're not far away. We're only a few months away from us being tired of like, Jesus, (laughs) another one in three weeks. Uh, And I think the candidates and the campaigns feel that probably more than we do uh, Mm -hmm. on the outside or in the media as close as we might follow it. But if every time Julian Castro, as he was, was hitting Biden, not only on your wrong or your policies are not as good as my policies, but he was hitting him on his history in the Obama administration. And it's like, okay, so not like not only are you attacking me, you're attacking me on my record. You're attacking me on your own record because he was also part of the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Like this is just self-destructive when there is an argument to say there's no possible way you were going to overtake him in the uh, uh, in, in, in the polls or in the primary. So how and when you hit. I think is something that is very, very interesting to pay attention to because Kamala hit about as hard as you could, but it was in a debate that happened around this time in the cycle uh, four years ago. So it was the earliest, it was the first debate that was happening. And so there was the longest amount of time that they could, that they could have happened. And she never went back to it. She never said, Hey, remember, I'm still that girl. I I was still the one busted. You're still an old racist man. So I do think that there is, that's the art. The art to it is never make it too personal. Make, make, you know, make your point and then, and then move on. And and at at least at that point, you're not burning so many bridges that you, that, you know, you're on the absolutely no, no forever uh, uh, poop list. Right. You still have time to kind of build back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. So if you're going to take a look at the crop that we have now on the Republican side, who, I mean, I guess, aside from Vivek that you mentioned, (laughs) is there anybody else that you see with a, you know, an upside to the point where maybe we get that week where there's a good poll and, and it's like, in fact, here, here will be my, my marker. Any of these people that we would agree have pure upside to run. Do they ever poll ahead of somebody like Mike Pence, who is about as establishment <laughs> as establishment bar. gets? Yeah. That's a low bar. I don't know. I, I, to be honest, it feels to me, and I could be wrong and this could change, the Republican field feels pretty calcified. And that just feels to be the case yeah. where I, I, I don't see much movement. And I think that's possible. I mean, I think, you know, Tim Scott is someone that Republicans have been watching for a long time. He is a very good speaker. I think he will do well in the debate stage. But even him or, you know, Chris Christie is someone also he's been creeping up in the polls a little bit. He's making some waves. Um, I, so maybe above Pence. But again, I mean, <laughs> Pence is at like five, seven percent. So I think that's just a low bar that the idea of that they could even get into second place above DeSantis. I just don't see it right now. I don't see it from any of them. I, I think to me, the upside, like to me, it's not about cresting. It's about like in the polls. I think there are several of them. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Francis Suarez, very good shots of being Trump's VP. And I think to your point, that is why yeah. one of them are criticizing Trump. And I think that is kind of the end goal here. I think I, I, I none of them seem to be particularly primed to really kind of explode. You know, I think a lot of people are watching for Christie on the debate stage. That'll certainly be interesting to watch. 
but I still think there's a ceiling for him that isn't is not too high. I can't remember another candidate that it wasn't just talking heads that were saying, well, wait for the debate, wait for the debate. <laughs> but like that's his out and out. Like yeah. that's his number. One. In fact, if we're going to talk about a one thing campaign, he has one. It's Trump. give me a time with Trump on on the debate stage. I will be very mean to Donald Trump <laughs> on the debate stage. I guarantee you, you've never seen anyone be as mean to Donald Trump on television as I will be there, which I mean, certainly is probably you know, more of a telling element of our modern political meta that that's what? something that, you know, donors and campaign people would would settle on as, mm-hmm. as something uh, effective beyond like policy. But uh, it's it's I can never remember anything like that, even even close to just let me be on television and yell at this man. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I, and I but I do think, you know, there is something to that in that. I, I don't think Trump has really ever faced that tough a debater. Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, neither of them, you know, were were incredibly strong state presences in their debates against him. No one in the 2016 Republican field went that hard, and Chris Christie included, went that hard against Trump. They kind of squabbled amongst themselves while yeah. Trump kind of stood there in the center of the stage and kind of just watched it happen. So no one really has done this. So I think part of that is just this like anticipation. You know, everyone's been waiting for Trump to face someone who might, you know, read off these things that certainly a lot of, um, you know, liberal voters and maybe some moderate Republican voters too have been thinking all these years that they haven't really seen that satisfying moment, which I do think you're right, speaks to this moment in our political ecosystem that we want that so badly or so many people want that so badly. Um, but whether that could actually be enough to to surmount Trump's lead, I'd be shocked. Or we'd also don't even know if Trump is going to stand there on the debate stage with Christie. Maybe he'll say, I have 60% of the vote. I don't need to stand there and have you attack me. So we don't even know if that happen. would be, I mean, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure he would never, in fact, he would explicitly say uh, uh, this was not because of Christie if he were to not, not debate, sure. but that is, that is certainly, I think the, the, the topic du jour. And, and actually here, let, let's get back to that in a second. The, the one thing though, I would say by the Christie thing, is that really for a Republican primary? Does it matter if somebody goes and does a Rachel Maddow monologue to Trump's face? Like while, while 10 other people are actively trying to get, get, get a, get a word in, like even the utility of Chris Christie being mean on stage is something that like, I, I, I I don't know who he's talking to. I mean, even in this campaign, I, I did an episode last week where I'm like, if, if these primaries were sports leagues, I would like to execute a trade between Chris Christie and RFK Jr. I feel like they're running in the wrong primaries. I feel like uh, they would both do better. They'd both poll better uh, well, in in the opposite uh, uh, primary because I think he's mostly speaking to an, an incredibly small subsection of Republican voters and largely liberal folks who want to see Trump brought to heel. And and yeah. I, I don't know where I don't know. I, I just don't know who he's talking to. And I think cynically, the answer that I kind of pose in the piece is I think he's talking to his future and he's talking to mm-hmm. the book publishers that might give him a deal when this is over. And to the cable news executives, you know, the CNN executives of the world that might give him a, a contributorship contract when this is over. And I think, you know, that's the cynical answer. Maybe it's too cynical. 
But I mean, I think you are right. Again, at the Faith and Freedom Coalition conference I was at this weekend, I was there as Christie was booed. Was well, straight the, out booed, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think if, if you are wondering whether attacking Trump will get you anywhere in a Republican primary, I think that, I mean, that was a slice of the Republican electorate. But but still, it's a pretty powerful, influential slice. And I think that kind of tells you all you need to know. Yeah. I mean, I think it is telling he uh, he is running for New Hampshire. He is not running for Iowa. So when he goes to the evangelical conference, he's going to get booed out of the building. Uh, all right. Let's. Um, oh, well, what was the other thing that we uh, that we just. Uh, touched on with. Oh, 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 oh the debate. Yeah. Trump. Do you think Trump's going to debate? I do. I think. I would not be surprised, you know, as he did in 2016, he kind of picked and choose. Yeah. And he, there was one debate they didn't go to when Megyn Kelly, the second time Megyn Kelly was going to be the moderator. Yeah, that was the Iowa, the Iowa one. Right, exactly. And so I surely would not be surprised, you know, he will have ultimate power in in some ways to decide the moderators and decide which forums he wants to step into and which he doesn't. Um, but I don't think he'll duck them completely. I think he is very sensitive to the charge that, you know, he is, you know, some sort of coward or or too afraid to debate or like you're saying, Christie will, you know, I think almost goad him into debating. And I don't think Trump would be willing to kind of let that charge fly by. But I I do think he'll exert his kind of influence that he has over the structure of the debates. Um, I think he'll wait till the very last minute to say whether he'll go or not. Um, and I, I would not be surprised if at some point, maybe if he's doing so well at the polls, he kind of just stops going and says, I don't need this anymore. But um, I, I would be surprised if we don't see him at all on the debate stage during Strutman. I would be blown away. <laughs> I would be like, I, I think a lot of this is, is uh, and we were in the media world, so we want things to talk about. But uh, I, I, I would be shocked considering how much of a made for television <laughs> mind he has to not be there during something that we look at. And also, we all kind of forget that. The man's political career was built on him destroying Republicans. And and there is an element of crossover appeal or at least legitimizing appeal that he was able to have by just shredding a former mold of what a Republican was supposed to look like. And he just took out heir apparent after heir apparent after heir apparent. He was uh, uh, not running with the same talking points. He was saying things that in, in a past Republican debate, like the Republican war or the uh, Iraq war was a disaster. That's something that you would have never heard at a Republican debate before. Uh, The question now is, you know, two cycles later, that field is built in his image. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of the stuff that he would normally have to attack. Now they all kind of follow the things that he was talking about back in 2016. So it'll be interesting to see how utilitarian his arguments on policy could be, because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know really what you could do beyond, well, I want to build a wall. Well, I want to build a wall too. Well, I want to build a better wall. Well, one issue I talked about this morning is, you know, and I think you're right. I think one part of Trump's appeal in 2016, he did really moderate himself and he kind of watered down a lot of Republican positions that were kind of, you know, standard issue Republican um, policy stances that he kind of moved away from very successfully in 2016. And I think interestingly, perhaps surprisingly, considering obviously his justices were the ones that um, overturned Roe v. Wade and he called himself the most pro-life president in American history. Again, at the conference I attended this weekend, you know, when he spoke um, you know, Mike Pence had challenged the entire field to commit to a 15-week abortion ban. Mm-hmm. Trump did not do that. He said the politicians need to learn how to talk better on this issue. And he was the only candidate I heard 
who committed to exceptions to abortion reception to, to abortion restrictions, yeah. the rape, incest, and life of the mother. And I do think that is one issue where he will kind of try to move, I guess, you know, to the left or at least to the center of the Republican field and try to make the point that they're going too far, even on an issue that he has in some ways been identified with, but they're going too far, that they're too radical, not electable. I think that is one issue that he will try to kind of do, do that same move in 2016 of kind of move to the center compared to the rest of the field. It will I, be fascinating see. to see what happens in Iowa and specifically with that evangelical community. Cause I mean, look, he didn't win Iowa in 2016. No. Uh, Ted Cruz did. He, I remember as the dying embers of that Cruz 16 campaign was happening. I had a staffer email me and was just talking about this, you know, kind of deal with the devil that, that the pro-life evangelicals felt that they were making that you're like, well, he's saying all the right things now, but let's see, let's see, look, he is a, you know, liberal from New York. So <laughs> he's not exactly going to be the churchiest person on the planet. And they were by and large. Okay. With, and obviously the, the, the Supreme court is the Supreme court, mm -hmm. but you know, politics is a, what have you done for me lately? Kind of business. And, and evangelically, Pence, that's his only shot. His only shot is to bet as hard as he can on that demo and whether or not that demo does meaningfully walk away from Trump well, will be a huge question. Uh, how was Pence received there? Um, yo, I, I wrote this morning, they were all received respectfully. And, you know, these are all candidates. And I spoke to a lot of voters. They like Pence. They like DeSantis. Everyone received standing ovations. They said the right things on abortion, said the right things on gender. But, you know, so everyone was received fine, except, you know, Christie was booed, but also got applause at other points. But just there was no comparison to Trump. I mean, Trump was received, you know, got his own Saturday night speaking slot. He spoke for 90 minutes and yeah. he was interrupted by standing ovations, you know, repeatedly throughout the night. So everyone was received fine, but there's just no comparison. Yeah. You know, I... <laughs> you know, we, we now are far enough away from the indictment, the the documents indictment with polling to say, you know, I was like, like, well, you know, at, at some point, if there is a breaking point where Republicans are like, OK, it's not that I don't think that this was brought fairly. I still think that Trump is being railroaded, but he, this was an own goal. This was this was sloppy. This didn't need to be. A, a a thing we can't put somebody back knowing that people have the long knives out for them we can't put somebody back in the white house that is that uh that sloppy i thought it would be that indictment but it doesn't seem like that's the case like like it is it is just the, the first part is the only thing that matters they've gone after him before we're gonna find out even if i read this and i think it's damn that's damning in six months we're gonna find something out that uh, you know, uh, put, puts the lie to the whole thing. That just seems to be the mood of, of the Republican electorate. Does that track for you? Yeah, I think that absolutely tracks. You know, and I think we saw a poll this or last night or this morning, NBC, 70% of Republican electorate. They don't care about the indictment. And that is absolutely the reaction I got. You know, I asked several voters you know, at the conference what they thought about it. You know, if there was any reaction, it was just that it pushed them closer to Trump. I had two people when I asked them about it. They started talking about him being acquitted because they were conflating with the impeachments, just yeah. which to me just showed how little any on the Republican side is paying attention to this, except to the fact, I think, to your point, that it just emboldens their support of him. And the other thing that came up a few times in my interviews were people talking about, you know, that 
like you're saying, they're going after Trump, they're going after him unfairly, and they're going to do it to whoever the nominee is, whether yeah. it's DeSantis, whoever yeah. else, but only Trump, he has the backbone to fight it. He's fought it before, he fought it for four years as president, and that he's the only one that can put the fight back to you know the liberal prosecutors and to the Democrats. And so that is kind of the mindset that really seemed pervasive at this conference was that, you know, whoever the Republican nominee is, they're going to face the same legal trouble. Yeah. But, you know, the, their belief is that Donald Trump is the only one who can. And, that, that. and that is a death knell for DeSantis, because because yeah. that's DeSantis, entire argument is Trump sloppy. Trump was uh, a, a lot of these things were, were were problems that he did not face head on because he's not smart enough and not thorough enough to do it. And he surrounded himself with the wrong people. If you if you listen to what they say, then people should have more of an idea that Trump that, that, that DeSantis is more capable than Trump. But if they don't then sure. they don't. And that's the whole game of politics. Gabe Fleischer, wake up to politics is his newsletter. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for, for joining us. I look forward to having you uh, on again in the future. For sure. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Politics, 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 written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show is edited by the great Brett Stewart. If you would like to thank Gabe for coming on the show, you can do so. px3guest.com you want to email me, even if you're being a little unhinged, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can find the show on Twitter at px3tweets. You can find me at Justin R. Young. You can find me live on Twitch, px3live. You can find my writing at px3newsletter.com. And you can find my podcast, px3podcast.com. Podcast you're listening to if you want to recommend it to somebody else. If you'd like to hit me with a one-time donation, it is paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Cash app is px3cash. And you can send me anything you'd like in the mail. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas 78715. Again, P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas 78715. You can always get our bonus content at takepoliticsseriously.com. Our $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcasting schedule. And our $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Jason, Andres, Matt, John Gross, C. Garcia, Matthew T. El Basso, John, Craig Potts, MC Dradio, Bugs Life, Neemeister, Unsafe DB Level, Amanda, Yield Pinball Shop, DP4 Bongo, Catherine, Todd, and Vote Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Edison, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start, Dr. G, Neil, Charles, Darren, 100 Mile Runner, Idris Arzlanian, Blue Front, and the Lenina, DL, Steven, Chad, Nomadic Terran, Molly's Dashing Debut, Adam, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul is awesome. Brad, Richard, just another pilot, middle aged Mike who loves Frank got abducted, Utah, Jimmy Montana, the Gen A L D L D L D. Really? Chopper, Andrew, and Joshua, you want your name read on this show. Guys, there's only one place to do it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Hope everybody has a great weekend. Fourth of July coming up. We're going to have a Fourth of July episode for you. We're going to be talking guns. Feel like that's a, that's a, a, a fitting topic <laughs> during the Independence Day holiday. It at least includes explosions. 
Uh, our friend Stephen Gutowski is going to join us. And uh, it's been a while since he's been on. I've had a, a bunch of gun topics that I, that I want to talk about some of the statistics that are being thrown around as well as Joe Biden's latest push on gun control. Maybe even a little Hunter Biden. We'll see where it goes. But till then, this is your old pal, Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, three. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.